You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. So, there are, there are a lot of people here this evening. This is awesome to see. I see some people coming back that have been, that have been here the last couple of weeks. Welcome back. Uh, if, we, if there's anyone new here, my name is David Dowdy. I'm the teaching pastor here. Um, glad you guys could come and worship with us this evening. Um, so, Happy New Year, first of all. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Um, this is one of like the few times a year that it is completely awesome for us to meet in the evenings if you're like me and you stayed up till 3 a.m. because you're foolish and just thought, why go to bed? This is dumb. You don't have to get up early. You can just come in the evening and worship. This is beautiful. Um, but anyway, uh, this evening we are going to continue our series in the Old Testament called Bible Stories. If you're new with us, this is what we're doing. Bible Stories subtitled Christ in the Old Testament. And what we're doing is we're looking at 35 or 40 of the most famous Old Testament stories and seeing how they all point to Jesus. Jesus Christ himself said in the Gospel of Luke, in the Gospel of John, I believe, that all Scripture points to him. It's all about him. And uh, the books of Colossians and Hebrews says that Everything in the Old Testament was a type and shadow of the one who was to come, being Jesus. Right? So all that we're trying to do is look at these Old Testament accounts of what happened and see how that all points to Jesus. I love listening to Lily growl. This is the first time that I've ever said it like out loud from, a, from the pulpit. I love hearing her do that. It makes me laugh. Um, so settle down, Lily. I'm not going to tolerate it anymore. Um, uh, but this evening... We are going to be in the book of Exodus. Uh, Kelly kicked it off talking about Moses and the burning bush where God uh, spoke to him through a a burning bush that was not consumed. And we're kind of going to pick up where he left off by looking at the account of the plagues of Egypt, right? Which is a great way to start the new year, right? Like, I was thinking to myself last night whenever I was uh, preparing to to do this a little bit, just kind of talking to some people at the party. Uh, I had some people over to the house. It was a good time. Um, and I said, you know, like, there's going to be people preaching on, like, Philippians 4.13. Like, man, this is a new year. You can do it this year. And I'm like, yeah, welcome to Revolution, the plagues. You remember whenever God destroyed Egypt? Like, that's how we're starting the new year, right? So, but this is actually a good way, I think, for us to kick off this new year. Uh, because this account of God striking Egypt with plagues, um, which literally um, means blows or strikes, right? That God is striking Egypt, um, is going to teach us something about God that we tend to neglect and tend to ignore. Um, This account is going to teach us a lot about the fear of God and the necessity of our submission to Him. Right? God is going to reveal a lot about himself to Egypt, to Pharaoh personally, to Israel, to the world in general, and us, right? Israel is our spiritual forefathers. We have been grafted into Israel through faith in Jesus. So if you're a Christian, this is definitely for you. If you're an unbeliever, right, this is for the Egyptians. This is for you to learn who God is. Um, And and I I would argue that it would be very wise for us to heed God's own revelation of himself through these plagues. Because if we neglect the things or attributes of God that make us uncomfortable... Or we ignore the doctrines the Bible teaches us that we don't like, then we become idolaters. Period. We become we, we invent our own religion that is false, and we invent our own God that does not exist if we neglect the things about God that make us uncomfortable. All right, so I think this is a great way for us to, to kick off the new year because we get to see uh, a side of God that we, we don't like because it's scary. Um, 
But before we go any further, I want to I make a few things plain um, so you guys don't get the wrong idea about me or about what our church teaches uh, if you're new. Uh, one, I am not a legalist. Because right, this is going to be a really heavy-handed sermon, I'm not going to lie. I am not a legalist. I do not believe that salvation comes by obedience to God. Right? If that were the case, Jesus Christ would have never came because you could have all just tried a little bit harder and obeyed a little bit more and been saved. Right? So I don't believe that. Obedience does not equal salvation. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. I am not a legalist. Um, second, I'm going to highlight uh, some of God's fearsome attributes. But that does not mean that he has no grace and no mercy. Right? He has mercy and grace towards those who humble themselves in glad submission before him, repent of their sins, and turn to Christ. Third, I'm going to call God often by his revealed personal name, which is Yahweh. I saw some of your faces whenever, Stephen, we were singing, you know, great is Yahweh, full of compassion. We didn't make up a God. We're not being weird. Anytime you ever look in your Old Testament and you see capital L, capital O, R, D, right, all caps, Lord, that's actually the Hebrew name Yahweh. It's a very personal name that God gave us, right? Whenever I say Yahweh, I'm referring to the entire Trinity, not just God the Father, all right, so got that. I'm going to use that name a lot whenever I'm reading and speaking about God um, because it's fitting. In this book, God reveals his personal name for the first time. Um, and lastly, we're going to be looking at a lot of text. We are going through nine of the ten plagues with spans from chapters 5 to chapter 10. And I wanted to read them all, but I, I, did, I decided not to. But you guys are going to do great. But we are going to look at a lot of text, and you guys are going to do awesome, and you're going to pay attention I feel like I'm talking to like a small group of children. Like, you guys are just going to do so good and listen to me. Um, as a joke, I'm sorry if that was condescending. Apparently I'm not funny. Um, welcome to the revolution. Uh, but my prayer this, this week as I've been studying is that we would take the truths about God's wrath and his demands to heart. Um, and that we would begin to submit more and more to him and his rule over us. Because he indeed rules over us, whether or not you're a believer. He is your God. But that in doing so, that, that, that the gospel, as we consider these attributes of God that are fearsome, that the gospel would become even sweeter. That the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead for the forgiveness of sinners would become sweet and even more sweet as we consider our rebellion, the just judgment that we deserve from God, and the mercy afforded to us by Jesus. Right, so with that, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to do some background and then hop into this text. And we'll be hopping in and out looking at the text. And then I'll narrate some. And then we'll go back into the text. And you'll catch on. It'll be good. Uh, but let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much for the people that you've brought in. Thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to worship you today as you command us to. Holy Spirit, please soften our hearts. Give us ears to hear. Give us good attention spans. Crack us open, break us to pieces with your law so that you can build us back together with your gospel. Holy Spirit, please draw unbelievers to faith and draw believers into a deeper faith. Use me as an instrument. If I say anything erroneous, God, let it fall on deaf ears, but let the truth wound us in order that you might heal us. In Jesus' name, amen. My mom got me that for Christmas. I was really just showing that off to you guys. It was a good time. Yeah, Yetis. The only downside to Yetis, I might add, is uh, if you're like me and you bank on the ice melting so you can get a last couple of drinks in, mm -mm, it doesn't happen. Like I bu almost busted myself with some ice earlier today. It's good times. Anyway, uh, so let's get some background before we hop into Exodus. Right? We're going to have to kick this all the way back to Genesis 12, I believe, um, whenever God chose 
Abram, right? Abram become, became Abraham, and Father Abraham had many sons, and so on. Um, but God chose this pagan named Abraham uh, and, and made promises to him. He said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you the land that the Canaanites dwell in. And I'm going to bless the world through you. Which means the Messiah, the Messiah that was promised to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, who would crush the serpent, Satan, is going to come through Abraham's line. It's going to come through this nation that comes from Abraham. And that's a covenant. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. God promised these things to Abraham. And in that covenant with Abraham, God also said in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, that the Israelites who would come from Abraham would be slaves in a foreign nation for 400 years. Right? So God like, gives them like, this great covenant and says, yeah, like, well, we're going to do this like, first. Right? Um, 400 years, uh, your people are going to be slaves in a foreign nation, but then God also promises that he would free them and judge that nation and give the Israelites the promised land. All right, and then God brought Israel into Egypt through Joseph. Right, That was the last time that I preached a few weeks back um, on the Old Testament. God brings Israel into Egypt through Joseph. And in doing so, God saved the Israelites from famine because he's a sovereign God. Um, and the Israelites were treated really, really, really well in Egypt for, for a while. Uh, because the rulers of Egypt remembered Joseph and knew of Joseph. But the first chapter of Exodus, it starts out very ominously. It said there arose a pharaoh in Egypt who did not know Joseph, right? And he enslaves Israel, and he's cruel to them. He, he, he has them beaten. He has them just mercilessly slave-driven. He murders their children. He has, he has the, the boys, too, and under drown in the Nile. Horrible, horrible things begin to happen to the people of Israel. And then God calls Moses out. This is where Kelly picked up. God calls Moses out from among the Hebrews and reveals himself as the God of Abraham. And he says, essentially, I have heard and I have seen the sufferings of my people in Egypt, and I remember my covenant with Abraham. Which doesn't mean that God had ever forgotten. Whenever the Bible says that God remembers something, that means he's getting ready to act. Right? So he says, I remember my covenant with Abraham. I'm getting ready to do something. He says, I'm going to free Israel. I'm going to strike Egypt down, and I'm going to give the Israelites the land that I promised them. And then God sends Moses and Aaron along with him as his prophet to Pharaoh to declare that God demands Israel be allowed to journey to the wilderness in order to worship God. And God says, and through this whole ordeal, you going to Pharaoh, I am going to free my people from bondage. Right? But he says, I'm going to have to show many, many signs and wonders to Pharaoh and strike him down first. All right, so let's pick this up. Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. We're going to be about 20 minutes looking at this narrative. 20, 25 minutes. You guys are going to do great. Verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So we're going to pause here for a second. I know it says the Lord again. That's God's personal name. Who is Yahweh? That's the crux question of this entire next five chapters. Honestly, the, the whole Bible, who is God? Who is the Lord? Pharaoh is told that Yahweh, the God of Israel, demands something from him. You let my people go so that they can go worship me in the wilderness. And this is his answer. Right? And this is the big question that the coming plagues are going to answer. And Pharaoh says this arrogantly. Right? Don't read this wrong like Pharaoh saying, well, who is, 
Who is Yahweh? I want to know who he is. No, this is an insolent, arrogant tone from Pharaoh. He is not seeking God, and God is going to answer him severely. And I would pose this. This is really the question that every single human being asks when we sin. Right? So this is for believers and unbelievers, because believers, you still sin. Right? Don't buy into that perfect sanctification lie. That's not true. You still sin. Every time you sin, you're saying, who is Yahweh? Pharaoh essentially represents all of humanity right now. Right? So basically we say, why should I listen to God? I don't have to, so I won't. Right? And especially Christians, we won't say this. Like We won't actually verbalize that. But we say it with our actions all the time. Who is God that I should listen to him? Who is Jesus that I should submit to his lordship? You know, believers, we do this periodically whenever we willfully disobey God's commands, right? Like whenever you fire up your laptop to watch pornography, right? Whenever you, you lust after someone that you see in public, whenever you, whenever you know that you shouldn't say this one thing to your wife, but you're really mad and you're going to say it to her anyway to prove a point and you're going to hurt her, right? Whenever you see uh, someone in need and you say, I'm going to keep my money to myself and I'm not going to be generous towards them because this is my money. Whenever fathers and husbands, you refuse to lead your family in worship of God, you refuse to pray with them or read the scriptures with them, even though this is what God would have you do, you are saying, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? And unbelievers, you live your life with this as your motto. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you've not repented and believed the gospel of Jesus, you are always unrepentantly sinning, always doing your own will. In the words of the Apostle Paul, you have no fear of God at all. And you live your life saying, who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? And I won't. Right, so keep that question in mind. Who is Yahweh? He is going to answer severely. Exodus 7.5. This is this is God talking to, to Moses. He says, The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Right? So he tells us right there, that's the purpose for his plagues. They will know who I am. I am God. They will know by the end of this whole ordeal. 7, chapter 8. Or chapter 7, chapter 7 verse 8. I can't speak English. Then Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as Yahweh commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as Yahweh had said, right? So this is a really iconic thing, right? We've all seen, you know, like the, the Prince of Egypt. Remember that cartoon? Anyone else? Yeah, that is awesome. I love I, I wanted to watch that this week, but I thought it would mess my sermon up. Anyway, um, <laughs> I start singing those songs from the film. Uh, right, this is a really iconic thing, right? Aaron uh, goes and he throws his staff down. It turns into a serpent, and the, the magicians of Egypt come and do the same thing, right? They do uh, what I would call a false miracle, Right? I think that this is a sleight of hand move. I don't really think that their, their staffs turned into serpents uh, because I, I would argue only God has the authority and power to transform things and create things. But Satan does have the power to deceive. Right? So I think that by uh, deception, because they're essentially worshiping Satan because they're not worshiping the God of the Bible, uh, they have this false miracle happen. But regardless, Aaron's rod is a foreshadowing. Right? And what is it? It, it devours the other two or I'm saying two, I'm sorry. See, the movies have gotten into my head. It devours the serpent's 
that the magicians cast down. It's a big foreshadowing. Basically, it's saying Yahweh is going to utterly destroy the opposition. They may oppose him. They may deceive the people around them. But God is going to utterly destroy them with these nine plagues that we're going to consider. Verse 14. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says Yahweh, By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as Yahweh commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them. As Yahweh had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after Yahweh had struck the Nile. All right, so verse 17, he says, by this you will know. All right, I, I just want to, I can't, I can't emphasize that enough. He wants us to know who he is through this ordeal, but he says the, the Egyptians will know by this. Right? And now he's saying, by this you will know. And what does he do? I would argue that this first plague, God is showing that he has complete and utter authority over Egypt. Right? He, he strikes the Nile, which is supposed to have multiple Egyptian gods protecting it. Right? And what does Yahweh do? He comes in and strikes it. This is an economic blow. The people can't drink. Right? For a whole week, they can't drink out of this. The water in like their pots and stuff that they had at home turns to blood as well. Right? So this is a clear supernatural act of God. And I think this is God saying, I am not a regional God. Right? Back in Old Testament times, a lot of people would think that you know, this God runs essentially like this God is the God of Ohio and this God is the God of Kentucky and he can't read. And, like, and this God is the God. You see what I'm saying? Like you go to like different regions and you have different gods. Um, and essentially I think Yahweh is saying, I am not just the God of the Hebrews. I am God over the whole earth. Watch me. I'll strike the Nile and your gods can do nothing about it. All right? And then after striking the Nile, God then hits Egypt with frogs. Right? And he, he brings them out of the Nile uh, in droves. And uh, the text says he brings them on the people and in their kneading bowls where they make bread and into their bedrooms and into their ovens and everywhere. Like, it makes me laugh that God, like, made people miserable with frogs. Like, just to show, like, what kind of raw power he has. He's like, yeah, these harmless little things. Like, you, you can't do work now. Like, I'm going to bring so many out of the Nile that, like, you, you got nothing. Like, you can't do anything. Right? So these people are in utter misery. Frogs are everywhere. And the magicians actually replicate this as well. Um, It's funny. They're like, oh, don't worry about it, Pharaoh. See what we can do. And they just bring more frogs out of the Nile, (laughs) which, like, doesn't help anything. Like, that makes me laugh. Like, yeah, we can replicate that. Don't worry about this, God. Um, But they can't remove them. They can't remove them. And here's the removal 
chapter 8, verses 8 through 15. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with Yahweh to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And Pharaoh said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people, and they shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to Yahweh about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh, and Yahweh did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the field, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as Yahweh had said. What I wanted to highlight, Pharaoh falsely repents. He says, please have him take these frogs away from me. And Moses says, okay, I'll go plead with him. And God takes them away because Moses asks. In verse 15, a respite. If you don't know, we sing a song that says, uh, uh, could my zeal no respite know? Which means no peace, no break, Right? Uh, respite is, 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 a, is a break in war, right? Think like that. It's a peaceful time. But as soon as the frogs went away and Pharaoh saw that there was peace, he hardens his heart and says, I'm not going to let the people go. So what does God do? He proceeds with the plagues, <laughs> right? Note this with Pharaoh. God will not be fooled by false repentance. Lip service to God. I'm sorry for my sin. I'll repent. Does nothing with God. He won't be deceived by false repentance, so God proceeds with plagues. Verse 16, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. The translation could be gnats or lice. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as Yahweh had said. So I think this is interesting. This is the first time the magicians can't replicate what Aaron and Moses are doing. And what do they say? This is God. They're beginning to see, right? This God has supremacy over us. We can't mess with, like, we can't mess with him. We can't replicate him. He stands alone. There's no one like this God in all the earth, right? So maybe, maybe listen to him, Pharaoh. Right? So the Pharaoh can't see, but some of the Egyptians are beginning to see what God wants them to see. Verse 20, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Let my people go that they may serve me, or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But... On that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And Yahweh did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by swarms of flies. It's really interesting. 
God now begins to make a distinction between his people and the world. Remember, God's revealing himself through this, right? So I'm not just making cute little commentary points. God's revealing stuff to us. He makes a distinction between the Israelites and the rest of the world. And I think he's saying, I protect my own people from my wrath. I am their father. I care for them. But I have wrath for everyone else. Right, so what does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh falsely repents again. Right? In the text, uh, essentially he's trying to bargain with the Lord. So he tells Moses and Aaron, go and worship, but stay in the land. Right? Like, don't go out to the wilderness, but you guys can worship Yahweh. So what is that? Pharaoh is refusing to fully submit to God. So what does God do? God strikes him with the fifth plague. He kills a ton of their livestock, but again makes a distinction. He spares Israel's animals and destroys a significant amount of Egypt's livestock. Right? So we're on the fifth plague. Now we're going to the sixth, chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh, and it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as Yahweh had spoken to Moses. This is one of the coolest plagues to me. He says, take soot from the kilns. What are the kilns used? Some, some commentators disagree, but this is, I, I agree with the ones who say this. Those kilns were probably the kilns that the Israelites had to use to bake bricks in their slavery. He says, take soot from the furnaces that you were enslaved by, throw the soot in the air, and I'm going to plague the Egyptians with it. Right? This is the justice of God. I will pay back men according to what they do. Period. This is is this beautiful poetic justice from the Lord. And I think it's really worth noting, the magicians can't stand before the prophets of Yahweh. The the boils are so severe on them, they can't even stand up to speak to Moses. Which I think is a small foreshadowing that none can stand before God in opposition. So again, Yahweh's revealing more. Verse 13, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourselves against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of Yahweh among the servants of Pharaoh and hurried his livestock and slaves into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of Yahweh left his slaves and his livestock in the field. So again, I want to highlight verse 16. He says, I'm doing this so that my name would be proclaimed in all the earth. So again, 
He wants us to know. I can't stress that. So please take this to heart. This is for you. He wants you to know who he is through this. But this is super important, what he reveals to us in this plague. God is being merciful to Pharaoh. He says, hey, heads up, man. I'm going to send hail on you, and it's going to kill anyone who's not under safe shelter. So maybe bring them in so that they don't die. Right? So God's being really merciful to Pharaoh. And not only that, but he, he's, he's showing that even though he has struck them, he has really dealt very lightly with Egypt. Right? Verse 15 says, do you not understand that I could have struck you all down with a disease and killed everyone in the nation by this point? But I haven't. This is Yahweh being merciful. But then God proceeds to strike Egypt with hail. He destroys most of their crops with the hail. And Pharaoh, again, falsely repents. And God won't be fooled, so the plagues proceed. Exodus 10, 1 and 2. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am Yahweh. So again, this is for us believers to know who Yahweh is. And God goes on and he threatens locusts. Right, which is essentially saying, like, hey, Pharaoh, I know you got some crops that just sprang up after I hit that, hit you with a bunch of hail. Um, I'm going to take the rest of your crops now. I'm going to take you with the, I'm going to take the rest of your crops with these locusts, and I'm going to leave you with nothing. Essentially, your nation is going to begin to starve because I'm going to strike you. I'm going to take every little hope that you had for redemption because you won't submit to me. And Pharaoh, again, begins to proceed to bargain with God, right? So he tells Moses and Aaron, go into the wilderness and have your festival, worship Yahweh, but leave your women and your children here. And Moses just says no. He said, no, we will all go, right? We will all go. God will not relent because Pharaoh won't repent. That was very Dr. Seuss. That wasn't my intention, right? But he won't relent with the plagues. So the locusts come. And destroy them. And then the last of the nine plagues that we're going to cover, I'm just going to tell you about it, is darkness. God calls the sun to stop shining on the Egyptians for three days. No sun, no light anywhere on the Egyptians. Um, But the Israelites had light. I thought that was pretty cool. Again, God makes distinctions. Um, the, 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 a verse in chapter 10 says this was a darkness to be felt, right? So this is like consuming darkness. They can't work. They can't see each other. They just stay in their houses. There's nothing they can do. And I thought this was the mo- one of the more interesting ones because Egypt's chief god was a god called Amun-Ra. Ra was the god of the sun. He's the one who makes the sun shine. He's their chief. He's their strongest god they have. They actually said that he was the god, like, like Pharaoh's father, essentially, right? Pharaoh's godfather, if you'll let me get away with that. Um, and what does God do? He turns the sun off. This is a direct attack against Egypt's chief God. What is he saying? Yahweh is the only God, and none of these false gods can help you because I am the only one that exists. All right, so he's revealed so much of himself through this. All right, so let's, let's bring this whole thing uh, full circle. All right, this all started with Pharaoh saying, Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? This question, when does it come? It doesn't come after they say, hey, we, we, have a, we have a God that we worship now and his name is Yahweh. No, this question of who is Yahweh that I should obey him comes after Pharaoh is told that God demanded him to do something. He said, let my people go. I demand that you submit to me. 
Now, Pharaoh is the representative of humanity in this story, and I would argue that, that we all have this heart of Pharaoh within us. Why is it that we get upset whenever we find out that God has demands on us and we initially don't want to do them? But essentially, if there is a God that has no demands, we're cool with that God. This is a very popular thing in our culture. If God has no commands or, or demands on me specifically, then you worship your God, and that's totally fine, and I can ignore him. But the second that he makes a demand on me, I get very defiant and rebellious, right? That's what we all have, to, have a tendency to do because we are okay with a God who is uninvolved and doesn't have standards and doesn't lay any claim on us. Right? Pharaoh lived in a time where he would have been cool with the Israelites having their own God, so long as that God laid no claim upon him. And like I said, people do this today. You can worship your God if you want, but the second that I tell you that my God is actually your God, and he demands that you repent and submit to him, people all of a sudden become very hostile. Who is this God? I don't believe in this God. And again, Christians, we do this whenever we disobey him. But whenever God reveals a standard, Pharaoh refuses to submit. Why? Why? Because submission means that you're admitting that there is something with authority over you. When I was growing up and I did something my mom told me, I'm essentially saying she has the right to tell me what to do and I'm going to do what she says. In the same way, if we submit ourselves to God, we're admitting that he has the authority. But why doesn't he want to do that? Well, Because by nature, Romans chapter 8 says we are hostile against God. We are God-hating people from the moment that we're born. We want nothing to do with him, so we rebel against him. Unless God does a sovereign work of grace in us to give us a heart that now loves him. But that doesn't happen to Pharaoh. Because God's not obligated to do that. But I, I want to draw this point. Pharaoh is rebellious against God. He says, who is Yahweh? I don't want to submit to him. He has no authority over me. And this goes really, really badly for Pharaoh. Right? I think we can all agree with that. It goes really badly for Pharaoh. But let's think about who Pharaoh is for a second. All right? He, this all makes sense in a second. He is king of Egypt. He is the sovereign one over Egypt who has power over life and death in the human realm. Right? Uh, he has... Uh, the best army at the time, right? The most educated people at the time. Egypt was the top dog nation. He is wealthy. Like, he makes Bill Gates look like a chump back then, right? And he is worshipped as a god himself. Pharaoh had a better shot at winning this dispute with God than you do. You're never going to be on Pharaoh's level. And yet we see how badly that it went for him. And that Yahweh won. So how much more foolish is it for us, common people, to rebel against this God? God strikes down kings in the Bible in order to teach us about the futility of rebellion, no matter who you are. How stupid are we that we would rebel against this God and refuse to submit to him, refuse to submit to Jesus, if this can happen to someone who has much higher status and power than you and I will ever have in our lives? We're stupid. There's a reason why God calls us sheep in the Bible. Because sheep are dumb animals. Are you like that? But Yahweh gives a response, right? Who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? And like, I, everyone ever seen like Taxi Driver with Robert De Niro? Right? Yeah, like I, I see like that's kind of like Yahweh's response right now. Like, who am I? <laughs> right? You want to know who I am? Why should you obey me? I'll show you. Right? And what does is, what is God reveal to himself in these plagues? i got six things. One, I am God over the earth and everything in it. 
Throughout all these plagues, what does he say? I control the Nile. I control the weather. I control animals. I control the insects. I control disease. I control the sun. There's not one thing that escapes my sovereignty. I have total control. I have total authority. That's what God's saying. He says, I am not a regional God that has to stay uh, with, with my people in whatever region that they're staying in. Yahweh is saying, I am your God. So let me just declare this truth to you. Whether or not you're a Christian, Jesus is your God. Period. I mean, the, the, the question is, will you worship him as he rightfully deserves? Right? Because what's said about Yahweh here in these plagues is said about Jesus, that everything is held together in the universe by the will of Jesus. That if he ceases to want something to exist, it just stops. This sovereign God is Jesus. Will you worship him or not? That's the real question. But nevertheless, he is your God. Second thing God reveals is that he is a God who will not negotiate his holiness and will not tolerate rebellion. Pharaoh tries to bargain with God all throughout, right? Well, you can go do this, but don't go into the wilderness. Or you can go to the wilderness, but don't take your kids and your wives. Or you guys can all go, but you've got to leave your livestock behind. He tries to bargain with God left and right. And what is God teaching us? And just keep pouring the plagues on. He's teaching us that I don't negotiate with sinners. Which is essentially Yahweh saying, I don't negotiate my holiness. If God negotiates his holiness, he is no longer good, which makes him no longer God. It's something he refuses to do. Right? So why should you listen? Because this sovereign God demands full submission to himself. Not, hear me Christian, not just in some areas of your life, but we don't compartmentalize our lives. And, and, and he also doesn't just demand submission when it's convenient for us. Like when it's easy to be generous or when it's easy to love somebody or when it's easy to be kind or when it's easy to tell someone the gospel. No, he demands full submission at all times and he doesn't negotiate on it. Third thing he reveals, in the plague with boils, right, where the soot from the kilns that the, that the Israelites were forced to use in their slavery, he's a God of justice. God pays back the unrepentant. That's what I mean by he's a God of justice. If you've not repented and put your faith in Christ, God, your, your bill, the debt that you owe to God for your sin, for breaking his commandments, it will be settled. And, it, and you will be the one that has to pay up for eternity in hell. Right? God sees all and he remembers everything. He will pay every man back according to what he has done, is what the Bible tells us. And your sin demands that you perish in an eternal conscious flame forever. Because he's just. But at the same time, God is a God of mercy. Did we not see that? He hits with one plague, showing his justice, and then he hits with the next plague, showing his mercy whenever he warned Pharaoh about the hail and says, I haven't killed everyone in your nation. I haven't struck you all down with pestilence yet. What is he saying? I'm offering you mercy if you will just listen to me. You will escape all of this judgment. You will escape all of this punishment if you will just listen. If you will just submit and repent and believe that I am the only God. So God is not just a wrathful, avenging God, but he's a very merciful God. And he's a merciful God who makes distinctions between his people and the rest of the world whenever it comes time to judge. 
Right? That's the fifth thing that God reveals to us. Right? So what does that mean? It means God will spare from his wrath, whenever it's time to judge the world, all of those who are in covenant relationship with him. Right? Well, how do I enter into the covenant relationship with God then? Well, Jesus institutes the new covenant. Right, where it's no longer uh, ethnicity or circumcision or anything like that, but it's faith in Jesus Christ that gets you into this new covenant. Right, that Jesus has absorbed the wrath that you deserve and, and makes you righteous in God's eyes so that you can be judged innocent by God. He makes a distinction because those are his people and everyone else in the world that does not repent and submit to the Lord Jesus gets wrath. And the last thing, and this might be the, the biggest. He is the only God, is what he reveals to us. I am the only God. I am Yahweh. Right? So every plague, this is interesting, every plague has a corresponding Egyptian God. And I really thought about showing you like all like 10 of the gods that kind of get the smackdown laid on them by the Lord. But every single plague has a corresponding God that God is attacking. What is he telling the Egyptians? Your gods can't help you because they aren't real. I am the only God. A lot of people say, you know, all religions lead to God or just there are different facets of God. Bull. God says, I am the only God and I'll show you. Because none of these other views of God, whatever you want to call them that the Egyptians have, they can do nothing for them. Nothing. So what is he teaching us? He's like, there is no hope anywhere in anything Right? Because remember, God also took their health, right? So he shows them your gods are a sham, your health, right? I'm going to take your health from you. I'm going to take your joy from you. I'm going to take the sun from you. I'm going to take your economy from you with the crops and the Nile. God says there is no hope anywhere except to repent and submit to him. So the living God, the God of the Bible, is the only hope that we have for life. Period. Right? So to kind of sum all that up, who is Yahweh? He is the God of total authority who demands total submission, who gives justice to the unrepentant, but gives mercy to his covenant people and is the only hope that you have to escape, escape his own wrath. That's who Yahweh is. So what are we to learn from this? Right, God, like I, I, made, I labored the point, God intends all of us to know him from this ordeal with Pharaoh. Right? And I had like five or six points of application, but Friday night when I was writing this out, God took them all from me, right? He said, there, there's one point of application. What are we to learn from this in light of who Yahweh is? Fear God. That's your, yeah, that's your one point. Fear Him. Now, sometimes whenever we talk about the fear of God, sometimes whenever the Bible uses it, um, it means like awe, like to stand in awe or to be enamored by God or just to, to show Him reverence. That's not what I mean. Because other times the Bible says, fear the Lord, and in the Greek it says, like phobos, or phobos, I don't know how you say it, but phobia, be afraid of him. So the Bible uses both, and that's the second one is the one that I'm using now. I mean real terror, be afraid of God. Be afraid of his wrath against unrepentant sinners. All right, so let me clarify this, because I grew up in a church that taught this kind of stuff a lot. They never clarified anything to me, and I don't want you guys to deal with what I dealt with then. Believer, those of, you, those of you who have repented and trusted in Christ and are currently following him, I don't mean you're baptized when you were eight or you cried at an altar when you were 12. I mean you are repenting and believing now. You're following Jesus now. If that's you, you should not live terrified of God. 
You should not live in a constant worry over your salvation if you are living a life of constant repentance and trust in Christ. Because that's what a Christian does. We sin, we repent, we push on, and we keep following Jesus. Just because you sin doesn't mean you're not a Christian anymore. Just because you sin doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. Jesus says he doesn't lose sheep. Right? If you've repented and believed, you belong to him, and he is the good shepherd, and he will not lose you. Jesus has secured your salvation with his life, death, and resurrection, and he says, I chose you before you were born. You're mine. Right? He's paid the penalty for your sin. If you're a believer... But if you're in unrepentant sin, not striving to kill it, you should fear. If you've been born again, if you're an actual believer who's actually following Christ, then you should fear not hell, but God's discipline. This is something we don't talk about a whole lot. The book of Hebrews says God disciplines those whom he loves. Right? So you should fear his discipline because if he has no discipline for you, then that means he doesn't love you, which means you're going to hell. Right? Just throwing that out there. Right? So if you're a believer, fear his discipline because God can and does strike us down in order to build us up if we foolishly forget just who he is. The Bible's full of the discipline of God. Look at the Babylonian exile. Whenever God disciplined Israel by, by giving them over to the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Egyptians and anyone who wanted a piece of them. He did that in order to discipline them so they would remember who he is and fear him and serve him. So if you're an actual believer, fear his discipline against you. I don't know what that will look like. But I know he will get your attention and it won't be nice. But unbeliever, by those of you who haven't repented and believed, you should live in constant fear. Like you should not want to like get out of bed. You should thank God you're alive, but you should not want to get out of bed whenever you're done. You should live in constant fear of God because these plagues are nothing compared to hell. This is nothing. Eternal flame where the worm does not die. You're never quenched. There's no water. Tormented under the unmitigated wrath of God for eternity. That is your state if you die right now and you're not a believer. Fear him. Fear the God who can, after killing you, send you to hell, is what Jesus says. And remember this, right? And this was a gut check to me, all of us, believer or unbeliever. God will not be fooled by false repentance. Remember Pharaoh. I'm sorry, just take the plague from me, right? So hear me out. Mere words of repentance is not repentance. Right, shooting up a Hail, Hail Mary prayer as I call him, Lord, I'm sorry for all the things that I did. Let's you know, peace out. Let's get this over with. Right? That is not genuine repentance. Repentance is marked by a brokenness over our sin where we come to hate it and come to hate ourselves for having committed the sin against God and broke, broken his commands. Right? It's not just fearing the wrath for sin. It's actually hating what I have done. Right, so to, to truly repent, we need a change of mind. Right? The, the Greek word for repent is metanoia. It means to acquire a new mind. That is real repentance where we agree with God that it was wrong. We agree with God that I'm a sinner. I agree with God that I need his grace. And I agree with God that I need to change. That's repentance. If our mind changes, our actions will change. Right? Romans 12.2 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. All right, so without a change of mind without a change in action, 
without mourning our sin, without hating our sin, without seeking forgiveness, we have not repented. No matter how many prayers you may have said. I'll say this, if you have no fear of God, then one of two things are true about you. One, you're an unbeliever who is no better off than Pharaoh. Or two, you're a stupid believer who needs reminded of God's wrath and hatred of sin. Never forget that God killed Jesus whenever Jesus took our sin on him, on himself. Don't ever forget that. God is being gracious with you in this sermon because he is reminding you of who he is. Right, so whenever we sin without care or conscience, uh, I had a, a little bit of a revelation this week. Um, I think that we're giving our hearts away whenever we sin unrepentantly. Right? We're like, what I mean is we're telling on ourselves. Right? And again, it's, it's a couple of things that I think are true. One, either I have no gratitude for what God has done for me in Christ. Right? I have no love for Jesus. Right? I don't really appreciate what he's done for me, so I don't care. I'm ungrateful for the grace that God has afforded me in Jesus and what it cost him to forgive me. I either have no gratitude or I don't think God is going to do anything about it. That's it. I either don't care what he's done or I don't think he's going to do anything. Which is essentially you saying God is not holy, his wrath is a, is a myth, and God is a punk. And how well did that work out for Pharaoh? Right, so all sin really boils down to one of those two things, and both are reprehensible, and they have no place among God's people. Right, so I know right about now some of you are thinking that I'm a legalist, right? Uh, but I'm just trying to tell you what God declares about himself. And I love you too much to neglect these truths. But let's get to the good part. How does this point to Jesus? God, did he not plead with Pharaoh? Let my people go. If you don't, then I will do this. Which tells us uh, on the other side, if you will let them go, then I won't. And you will avoid my wrath. God pleads with Pharaoh to let his people go in the same way that I think Jesus pleads with us to let yourself go. Stop holding on to your own will. Stop holding on to your own sin. Let yourself go and be free with the freedom that comes through faith in Christ and avoid the wrath that is coming to you. God is pleading with you right now in, in your hearing of this good news. God is pleading with you. God is calling you right now to repent and trust in Jesus and avoid hell. Or if you're a believer, avoid his discipline. He's being merciful towards you. He is not indifferent. He's not sitting there arms folded saying, I just, I'm going to do it. He, he's pleading. He's being patient towards you is what Peter says in his epistle. Listen to his voice. God pleads with Pharaoh. Jesus pleads with us. I think the plagues also foreshadow, so foreshadow the day of the Lord. It's this fearsome day that we're told about all throughout the Bible, and then we get some clarity in the New Testament that this is going to be the day where God judges the nations in righteousness and strikes down those who don't belong to him. And this is a really unpopular view of Jesus. Jesus says that it's not the Father who's going to do that on the day of the Lord, but it's him. So the lamb who was slain becomes the lamb who becomes a warrior. So this definitely points to Jesus, that Jesus will one day judge the world in such a fury at his second coming that these plagues will look like child's play. And this day is imminent. And everyone will have to stand in judgment. But Jesus will make a distinction. He says, I will separate the sheep from the goats. You want to be a sheep. He says, I will separate my people who have repented and believed, though they have failed 
Though they have still sinned, and I will save them. But the goat's gone. But he will make a distinction. I see through the plagues that the world came to know exactly who Yahweh is. That was his, his purpose for the plagues. And in the same way, according to Paul in Philippians chapter 2, one day everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Whenever they call Jesus the Lord in the New Testament, it's the same word used for Yahweh in the Old Testament. You will know that Jesus is Lord. Whether willingly or unwillingly, you will acknowledge this, just like Pharaoh didn't want to, but he eventually, we're going to look at it next week, he acknowledges who Yahweh is and releases the people by force. God does it to him by force. So hear me, Jesus is your God, and he will receive full submission from everybody if for, or by force if necessary. So again, he's pleading to submit to him. And then lastly, God displayed in these plagues his wrath and his mercy. He gave warnings. He didn't kill all of Egypt, and yet he did strike them with severity. In, in the same way, and hear me, this is so important. If you, if you don't hear this, then this whole sermon just becomes a bunch of law and legalism that will give you no hope. But hear me. God shows wrath and mercy in these plagues. And in Christ crucified on the cross, the wrath and mercy of God met together. That God's wrath against sinners was satisfied in the sufferings of Christ so that he could give mercy to those who repent and believe the gospel. He will credit them with the righteousness of Christ and credit Christ with their sin. And that Christ is the propitiation for their sin, the one who satisfies the wrath of God. So in Christ crucified and raised from the dead, God offers us this. For all the times that you have arrogantly said and I have arrogantly said, who is the Lord that I should obey him, that Jesus Christ has suffered the plague of God that you and I deserve? This is good news. What a merciful God. This is our only hope. Jesus is the only hope that you and I have to avoid his judgment. So I would beg you to leave here in full submission to God. Fear Him. Be introspective and honest with yourself. Hear me, believer. What sins need to be confessed to God? What do you need to repent of? Because there's something. I'm not saying if there is something. I'm saying there is something. There's always some deep, dark, unevangelized corner of our hearts that the gospel light needs to hit. What do you need? Do you need to pray for a soft heart? Do you need to pray for holy fear of Yahweh? Don't be like Pharaoh. Submit to the Lord Jesus and receive the grace that comes from him because God says he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble and raises them up. So let a holy fear of the Lord lead you into holy living for the glory of God because that's what he intends in reminding us of these qualities that he has, is that we would live lives to give him glory because we know who he is and we fear him like we should. And I know I've preached a lot of hard things. I'm going to end with this. Because I want us us to leave here with good news about the grace of God extended to us in Christ. So I'll I'll let John finish this. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.
Repent and believe on Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are merciful and gracious beyond measure. God, I pray you give us a humble spirit and and a holy fear and a soft heart. God, let, let, let these attributes that you showed lead us into gratitude for what you've done for us in Christ, that that we deserve what Pharaoh got, that we deserve hell, but instead you've given us mercy and grace through Jesus. God, let the unbelievers that are here understand that all you ask is that they submit the lives that they've been ruining themselves. God, we all dig ourselves into this pit, and yet you offer to pull us out of the pit if we would just submit to you. Holy Spirit, please do a sovereign act of grace in the hearts of all the people here so that we might love you more. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.